This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. 2017 is going to be a volatile economic year. We may see politicians throughout the world attempting to control central bank policies. Several renowned financial analysts have warned that political interference in central bank policies may mean our economic misses of inflation and growth targets. Gold is an international currency that can't be issued or controlled by governments. If you don't have the only hard currency that has outlasted every politician and every failed idea of governments for centuries, you need to speak to Goldline right now and learn how easy it is to add gold to your portfolio or IRA. Now is the time to diversify your financial portfolio by adding gold. Call 1-800-913-GOLD. Buying real gold is easy and fast at Goldline. And you're going to be happy that you finally made the call. 1-800-913-4653. Goldline also offers price protection against short-term market fluctuations on qualifying purchases. So buy with confidence. Read Goldline's important risk information and find out if buying gold is right for you. Call Goldline. one 800 913 The more the world changes, the more we find comfort in things that never change. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser. Welcome this week to another episode of Reform This on the Blaze Radio Network. Uh, This is your faithful American Muslim reformer, Muslim who believes that global terrorism, global Islamism, the underbelly of radical Islam, political Islam, the belief in the Sharia state is a problem that Muslims need to fix. As a former naval officer, as a believer in doing everything I can to leave the world a better place than I left, than I than it was when I got here, um, I'm with you every week trying to bring you a message of reform, a message that, yes, this is a Muslim problem, but whether you're Muslim or not, understanding this, beginning to motivate Muslims uh, and uh, light a fire under their feet, if you will, to get things done, to begin to confront the ideologies that face us is the most important struggle of the 21st century. And this week, we've got a lot to cover. I want to spend some time talking to you about two very important issues. One is... This whole concept, we've talked before, but this week uh, there's been a shift in the Trump administration's uh, uh, policy that has made it clear what they're going to do. And uh, I think some healthy analysis of that is worthwhile. And what we're talking about is how do you build allies that can fight ISIS and what should be the military's role in building those allies. So ultimately, we're entering the era of much increase in hard power, what will happen to soft power? And secondly, the bandwidth, the bandwidth of attention to Muslims, the bandwidth within the Muslim community. What do we spend our time talking about and why? Does it matter? Do we just follow the reflexes of partisan politics or do we actually lead, lead our community into reform? So first, I have to tell you this week uh, there was some signaling and finally the administration has made one of its first asks and the notice was made that uh, the uh, State Department uh, basically told, and this is uh, coming from Secretary of State Tillerson, told Congress that it backs the sale of 19 Lockheed Martin F-16 jets to Bahrain without preconditions. Again, without preconditions. 
on improved human rights previously demanded by the Obama administration, according to people familiar with the proposal. This is from Bloomberg News. The request of the support for the sale of up to $2.7 billion in jets doesn't include a package to upgrade older F-16s, which said could bring the, the decision, the proposal, up to $4 billion. And this then will trigger over the next three weeks an informal notification period that will be followed by a formal publicly released document that Congress has 30 days to approve. So basically, the Trump administration's outreach to traditional Arab allies has been to strengthen the bulwark, as Bloomberg called it, against Iranian expansion and make them in the, a partner in the fighters in the fight against ISIS and also against Iran. So strategically, this makes sense. And this is all happening at the same time that Rex Tillerson meets with the UAE foreign minister, Sheikh bin Zayed. Again, one of the more moderate Arab nations. But you had General Votel testifying to Congress today, or this week, that he, he was, by the way, the commander um, of the U.S. forces in the Middle East. He told the House committee that the foreign arms sales to allies shouldn't be burdened with preconditions. Burdened with preconditions tied to human rights because that could damage military to military ties. So we're going from an era in which the Obama administration basically pretended to care about human rights, but really was so apathetic, they were completely missing in action. So they both neutered the military to do anything functional versus ISIS and sat in a position of utter abject weakness against the militancy and belligerence of Iran, while they also claimed to care about human rights. Now we're getting whiplash as we shift to hard power, real hard power, where we're trying to actually, and mind you, patriotically, defeat ISIS because we are the only power in the world, in conjunction with our real allies like Britain, Israel, and others, we are the only ones in the world that can defeat ISIS. Assad and the Middle Eastern militaries uh, of the tyrannies of Egypt, Saudi Arabia, and others might do so for show, but they really aren't into it to the end. So that's the hard power that we see increasing. But soft power is going to be ratcheted back to almost being non-existent. So ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the 1950s and 60s, which was the beginning of not only the Cold War, but the beginning of the entrenchment of some of the most vicious military dictators in the Middle East that were basically the playground in the Cold War as we picked our allies that sided with us instead of siding with the Soviets. And we didn't care what they did to their people. We just cared that those nations gave us bases and gave us footholds to protect the world from the true, true global threat of Soviet expansionism, hegemony, and imperialism. Now we see a shift in that the old 50s and 60s bolstering of the allies of the Arab dictators is beginning to reawaken and recur with again now we're turning 
not just lip service, as Obama might have said occasionally to human rights, to now basically openly telling the House, as General Votel did, basically telling them that, no, it's a, we don't want a condition. Come on, we don't want a precondition. Giving F-16s and weapons to governments because of how they treat their people. Come on. Then we can't have allies, and they'll be sucked into the evil vortex with Russia and Iran and others. There might be some truth to that, but what will history say about us then? Can we not do both? Can we not use that leverage to demand and force them and squeeze the way they're being squeezed by Iran and others into better appreciation of human rights and ultimately begin a third pathway of helping the revolutions. Because do we really side, if we stand for freedom and if our branding of democracy is to sell to the Arab street and others that believe that the last hope for mankind, that city on a hill, as Abraham Lincoln called it, is America. If that's what we are, we cannot sell our soul to the devils of monarchs in the Middle East and their dictatorship and the way they treat their people. Bahrain, while in many ways one of the more moderate Middle Eastern countries, has used oppressive tactics to ward off protests, rallies, dissidents, and those who voice disagreement with the regime, the minority regime of Sunnis in, in, in the Bahrain. So, there's little doubt left that apparently one of the reasons Secretary of State Tillerson might be shrinking the Department of State is because soft power is becoming irrelevant. No, we're not seeing a more muscular hard power than to be combined with more muscular soft power where America has a defining element of advancing freedom and liberty around the world. And this doesn't have to be militarily. When we talk about advancing freedom and liberty, we're talking about the ideas about al-Hurra and other radio-free liberty to be pumped and broadcasted into Saudi Arabia and Iran to help the secularists, the, the free thinkers, the atheists, the Muslims who reject theocracy. No, we're not hearing any of that. We're actually now hearing that we want to rebuild allies, which is fine. But we tell them publicly, don't worry about your human rights records. That's not a very American statement. The UN is completely useless. And the Universal Declaration of Human Rights that we're supposed to be advancing and protecting is now giving way to a club of dictators that we are trying to simply control a majority of as the Russians now control Iran, Syria, most of Lebanon with Hezbollah, and Yemen growing. So, when we come back, let's talk about soft power. Will there be any left? What will a Trump doctrine look like in the Middle East? And has, have we turned the clock back 50 to 70 years 
as the Arab awakening looks like a dimming light in the distance. This is Zudi Jasser on Reform This, and I'll be right back. You're listening to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser. The Blaze Radio Network. The progressive movement is full of lies. Why do Americans keep falling for the deception? In his new book, Liars, Glenn Beck reveals the simple answer, fear. At our most basic level, we're all afraid of something. And progressives exploit this by offering us solutions to our fears. Solutions based on lies and an unrelenting hunger for power and control. Understanding the roots of these lies is key to helping us stop the disease of progressivism. Liars by Glenn Beck. On sale now at glennbeck.com slash liars. Welcome back to Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand, only on the Blaze Radio Network. This is Zudi Jasser. Welcome back to another segment of Reform This. It's always great to be with you. And if you're a subscriber, thank you for listening again this weekend. And if you're new, I hope you find a voice here that will help educate, will help embrace the ideas of freedom, liberty, and will help open your mind to the fact that there are Muslims out there who share American values, who would die for this country, who would die to protect our national security against the greatest threat of this century, which is political Islam and the Sharia state. So, you know, we're talking about just a small little country, Bahrain. What's wrong with selling them a few more jets? It's just $4 billion. But for me, to me, this is a policy statement. This is the first. We've been sort of trying to get a whiff of what a Trump doctrine will be like in the Middle East. And I think we're starting to understand what that might be. Now, let me just set the stage here. The 2016 Human Rights Report issued by Trump, issued after, I'm sorry, Trump took office, cited the lack of judicial accountability for security officers in Bahrain. It accused them of significant human rights violations and limitations on the citizens' ability to choose their government peacefully as among the nation's most serious human rights problems. It said that the government did take some steps to, to carry out some recommendations aimed at reviewing allegations of police brutality and torture following mass protests beginning in the Arab Awakening in 2011. General Votel, speaking to the House committee, didn't dismiss human rights concerns. You know, he said, quote, We continue to urge the government of Bahrain to reverse steps it has taken over the past year to reduce the space for peaceful political expression in its Shia population and have encouraged the Bahrainis to implement needed political reforms while assuring them of our strong commitment, he said. I know, I know, the U.S. Navy 5th Fleet headquarters and the combined maritime forces are in Manama, Bahrain. And we've had a base there for a long time. But, you know, the the bottom line is is that um, the leverage is there. And we're giving that up. To say that that leverage, as General Votel said, is can often have unintended consequences... You know, it's amazing to me how much the military becomes some of the worst statists in the world. Yes, they're patriots and they are unbelievable, unbelievably brilliant and sacrificing individuals for this country. But when it comes to influencing other states, other countries, 
and advancing our values, they seem to want to work with the establishment. And this is what Trump has engaged. I'm waiting to see when we will hear a Trump doctrine that says that America's soft power will be just as robust as its hard power. America's soft power of of protecting women's movements that are being abused and tortured by regimes like Bahraini's will be employed and deployed on the floor, on the ground. Not as boots on the ground, but as ideas on the ground. Yes, we need our hard power. And I think you can engage regimes like Bahrain by continuing to use some of the military aid that we give them with the condition. Now, some will say, well, they can't use F-16s to hurt their own civilians. Why don't you ask our families in Syria what's bombing, carpet bombing their homes? Helicopter gunships, Russian jets. So the Egyptian military now claimed to have brought reforms. The rhetoric of reforms was stated, but there is no reality of that. The reforms of al-Sisi were about stopping the violence and the the viral sort of gang-like activities of al-Qaeda, Muslim Brotherhood especially. But the ideology that he's pushing is really not that different. It's an Islamic state, a Sharia state that arrests people for blasphemy and apostasy, gives impunity to soldiers and others on the streets that viciously torture those who voice dissent and do do so in the name of Islam, in the name of the Islamic State and Sharia. Very little has changed. We've not seen any actual reforms for those words that are never spoken by military dictators in the Middle East, which is freedom, liberty, and democracy. So, it is time as conservatives, as liberals, that we hold the Trump administration. This is an important time as they set some of the parts in place of what their doctrine will be like. That we hold them accountable to soft power. That's what the Department of State is supposed to lead. What is its engagement going to be? I know right now the priority is building a coalition to end ISIS. But what's going to happen after? After ISIS is gone, you have that vacuum again. In Iraq, that vacuum is going to be filled by Shia supremacism along with their Sharia supremacism of the Khomeinists. Assad will fill the vacuum back with business as usual like he learned from his father Hafiz. And when the extermination of more Sunnis is done in Syria, he will put the radical genie back in the, ba- back in the bottle of the prisons of Syria so that he can continue ruthlessly to oppress Syria under the mirage of stability without a revolution. No, the revolution will never go away. That is out of the bottle. Might be able to put ISIS back for a little bit with American fortitude and a Trump administration that will, thanks to Secretary Madison Kelly, will not sit until ISIS is gone. But without a forward soft power strategy, 
Without a soft power strategy, this will all be for naught. Without a soft power solution to advance a third pathway in the Middle East, separate from military tyrannical dictators and monarchs, and the other side of Islamists and theocrats, without a third pathway that was sparked by these revolutions, without that soft power, you're going to see a recurrence like a whack-a-mole of another radical group, Jabhat al-Nusra, whatever it might be, that will have to again get the military allies to give them more weapons so that they can stay strong in the old 20th century paradigm of propping up dictators to work with us against the global menace of Russia, which it is, and against the global menace of radical jihadis will continue as a as we are the hamster in the proverbial wheel of jihad. You're not going to stop that wheel until we infuse a freedom that might involve a lot of kinetic conflict internally and civil war. But if they can truly be civil wars, then I believe eventually they will evolve as the West did towards critical thinking, towards real modernization, towards an abandonment of socialism, Arab nationalism, towards an abandonment of military dictatorships. Things might get much messier first, but the only pathway towards a lasting generational solution is a soft power advancement of liberty and freedom. And I hope and pray that that's what a Trump doctrine will be. Because if a Trump doctrine instead reverses what the Bush administration started, Bush 43 as a freedom agenda, which the Bush administration laid out in Condoleezza Rice's, Secretary Rice's speech in Cairo in 2005, in which she said, for too long, we have advanced stability and through and security together at the expense of democracy. And that must change because those are illusions. She called them illusions. And I think this is the reality is that you are only going to see lasting solution through the advancement of soft power and it appears so far that the Trump administration is not doing that. I think they get the fact that Islamism is the problem and they are going to move to begin to shift from countering violent extremism, which was meaningless, to countering violent Islamism. And we've talked about that here before. But it, you can't do that in a vacuum in America. It needs to be done globally. The platforms that we're building in programs like this will only have a voice globally if we start to say the same thing in Bahrain and Saudi Arabia. And yes, those moderate countries that need protection can and should be the laboratories of the most significant change. Look at Tunisia. Right now, a very tenuous country, but yet democratically marginalized Islamist movements. That monarch, if he had still been in place after 2011, you could have made the argument that he's one of the most moderate, benevolent monarchs. But the best thing that happened was his departure. And yes, in Nahda won, you had Islamist win. But then two years later, in December 31st, 2014, the Islamists, the Brotherhood of Tunisia, lost. 
And that could be Bahrain's future. That could be the UAE's future. It could be Saudi Arabia's future. And Iran. That's how soft power can evolve into stabilizing the Middle East in the long term. While in the short term, it's going to get messier. No dictators, and I can tell you this as a Syrian-American, no dictators will leave quietly. Tunisian dictator left relatively quietly, obviously, compared to Assad. But he still needed a revolution to leave. So we're learning. We'll see. We'll see where the administration goes with this and what their plans are uh, beyond simply trying to give a few more jets to uh, Bahrainis. And I think they're trying to send a message, obviously, to Iran that we will stand by our allies as we do with Saudi Arabia and others. But we cannot let the world see us compromise our human rights values. And we cannot let them see that there will not be a stick with that carrot. When we come back, let's talk about what the bandwidth of the Muslim community should be spent talking about and and thus what will our legacy be this is Zudi Jasser on reform this you're listening to reform this with Dr. Zudi Jasser the blaze radio network don't miss the Chris Salcedo show I I I, I, I am I am so sad to have to do this but good job John McCain he called the dictator the communist over in, uh, in North Korea a, a crazy fat kid. <laughs> that, that, that's utter. That's that's the name of my new band, Crazy Fat Kid. The Chris Salcedo Show, weekdays at 3 p.m. Eastern on the Blaze Radio Network. With stories in the areas of family, friendship, faith, and finance, this is Rabbi Daniel Lapin. Only on the Blaze Radio Network On Demand. This is Dr. Zudi Jester. Welcome back to Reform This. Thank you for staying with me. Thank you for listening. And thank you for being part of our conversation. Part of the, uh, uh, I think, the change that's one of the most important things that needs to happen in this generation, in this century, which is the defeat of political Islam and the reform of Islamic thinking. So to all you reformers out there, thanks for joining and, you know, the question is, is I think that's the most important. You know, I was given, I was part of a debate a couple months ago. I talked to you about it at the time. I debated Salam Mariotti from MPAC. And that video is at our YouTube station, AIFDTV, AIFDTV. And you can see the full debate there. After the debate, we debated whether the Muslim reform movement was necessary. And I obviously believe we needed to invent it. We need to move forward. We need to get a following and gain larger and larger following and platforms. MPAC claimed that on the one hand, they tried to claim they're doing reform. On the other hand, they felt the movement wasn't necessary, which is a, a bit of an absurd dichotomy of positions. But I'll let you look at that uh, uh, debate. But somebody came up to me afterwards, one of the MPAC supporters, and said, Zudi, you guys seem to agree on some things. And what do you think is really the difference between the American Islamic Forum for Democracy that you chair and the Muslim Public Affairs Council? What, how do you think the difference? And I said, well, look at our bandwidth. That's how you tell the character of an organization. That's how you tell the character of leaders. 
What do they spend their time talking about? Go to their website at mpac.org, Muslim Public Affairs Council. You'll see the majority of time spent talking about Muslims as victims, Muslims as as uh, needing representation against the bigotry in America, oh, that uh, policies of the Trump administration that spread anti-Semitism, anti-Muslim ideas, all these things demonizing, demonizing the very country that we live in. Now, they do it in a narrative of pro-Americanism, etc., uh, but at the end of the day, that's the bandwidth. If you look for areas of questioning, of critique of Muslim leadership that are part of the radicalization process, if you look at the time spent, the staff hours spent on reform, true reform issues that are part of the radicalization, they would have to first acknowledge to go beyond that first step in a 12-step program that we have a, 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 a huge role in the radicalization of even the militants that, yes, most Muslims, if not every Muslim that I've met, rejects terrorism. But a lot of Muslims in the leadership community fuel the ideas that plant the seeds of radicalization that tell our kids that we are not part of this society or that if we are, we demand it rather than Americans that happen to be Muslim. They are Americans, Muslims who demand to be American. So the issue is about bandwidth. Certain amount of time that we have to spend on these issues. America has a certain amount of time to spend on dealing with Islam and Muslims. Look at your news stations that you watch or the movies or sitcoms, culture politics, media, art. You can't spend 24-7. I mean, this podcast, you listen once a week, you get your daily dose or weekly dose of Muslim reform and solutions. And then you go on to sports, you go on to entertainment and other things. So if you have a certain bandwidth in society that you can Pay attention to what are the national security issues that we can lift up and protect our country and moving towards solutions rather than a whack-a-mole program. This is Muslims that need to lead this. And if our organizations are soaking up their bandwidth with the identity politic that being Muslim is not an idea but a race, that being Muslim is not a theological mindset, but an identity politic. They are going to miss any responsibility. I remember debating a professor in Colorado. I can't remember his name. He runs a political science section. He's over, I think it's Hashimi. He runs a, a political science section in Colorado, University of Colorado, and we were on a three-part panel with myself, Rabbi Cooper it's from the Simon Wiesenthal Center, and Professor Hashmi. And about halfway through, he looked at me indignantly, seeming to metaphorically pound his fist and say, I am sick and tired of having to 
answer to people like, and he's talking to me, people like you about why we have to be accountable as Muslims to radicals and terrorists that we have nothing to do with. These are created by the foreign governments abroad, by the Wahhabis and others, and these are not our ideas as Americans. I have nothing to do with that, and I will not accept responsibility, he said. I said, so please point me to the texts on the shelves in your office that are reformist Muslim texts. Many of the very scholars that we use to find elements of secular humanism and other liberal ideas are also raging Islamists. (laughs) They're split in their ideas. So, the denial is unbelievable, and the indignant denial is unbelievable. These guys here, this professor didn't give a blank about his legacy. In fact, when he was called on it by another Muslim that he needs to care about his legacy, he indignantly said that his religion is fine. It has no areas that need reform. That Wahhabism, Salafism, political Islam are simply contrived by tribes in the Middle East. And when I asked him to equate it with Khomeinism, I got some silence. Well, he's Iranian, so sure he's going to be anti-Wahhabi. Now, he wasn't pro-Khomeinist, but at the end of the day, he was not as vocally anti-Khomeinist. And the method of articulating... If you look at the books, the policy, if you look at the attention to where the cancer is and what we should be spending our time treating, these professors, these organizations, the establishment of the Muslim community is not only complicit, it is the problem. This is why we're getting nowhere. This is why when the Muslim Reform Movement sent out thousands of letters to mosques, we got few back. Contrary to our detractors that wanted to spread the lies that somehow this means we're failing, no. It means the establishment, over 90% of them are are Islamists and apologists and separatists with the American ideology, the social contract. They do not believe in a pluralistic society. They believe in an Islamic state. It is our role to expose them. But if we're spending all of our time in that time that we have, that Americans pay attention to Islam when it spikes after a terror attack, when it spikes in interfaith work, when it spikes on holidays and spikes in politics and presidential campaigns, if we waste the bandwidth talking about victim issues, if we waste the bandwidth talking about identity politics and talking about the right to wear a hijab, the right to be free of somebody saying something on a street somewhere that's bigoted, yes, that happens, but if you want to fight that, soak up the bandwidth with anti-Islamism, with reform, with sermons from mosque to mosque, or even outside the mosques, calling out groups like Hizb Tahrir. And if you haven't heard what they are, 
just last week in Australia. They openly on media called for the death of those who leave Islam. And these are supposedly not terrorists. Now, we always known that Hizb al-Tahrir, many of them go on to become terrorists because it's one of the last steps in the non-violent pathway of Islamism towards violent Islamism. There was even an imam who is not necessarily moderate, who basically this week in Australian news said that we have a cancer and Islam needs reform. <laughs> Welcome to the party, Sheikh. What was his name? Talhani? I can't remember what his name was, but bottom line is is that don't tr- these imams are going to start they realize that the walls are moving in from both sides and i hope this program is a marker for all of you for those who are the honest reformers and those who might just be realizing that they need to get away from the program of the islamists The real reformers will note that the legacy will be the destruction, the defeat of the Islamic State. There is no apologetic of an Islamic State that can be made into some type of peaceful entity. It will always slide down that slippery slope of Islamism towards militant Islamism. So it's about bandwidth. And then the last segment when we come back, I want to talk to you that the bandwidth get sucked up by the vacuum of ideas because we have no leadership. So let's end today talking about leadership and what you can demand of your Muslim friends from their leadership that so far is the wrong ones and we need to develop new leaders. This is Zudi Jasser on Reform This. Breaching the fault lines of today. This is Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser. On the Blaze Radio Network. Are you worried about your mom or dad living alone in their house? Hi, I'm Joan London. Listen, I know how difficult it is to find senior care for someone you love. That's why I recommend a free service called A Place for Mom. They are the nation's largest senior living referral service. Call A Place for Mom today. To receive free information on senior living communities in your area, call A Place for Mom at 1-800-803-6951. Welcome back to Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand, only on the Blaze Radio Network. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser. Welcome back to the last segment this week of Reform This. Thanks for being with me. Thanks for listening. I hope you get something out of this program and uh, take it to your friends. Take it to the water cooler and uh, begin to shake the trees. I think Muslims have gotten a pass, not uh, uh, from uh, attention, but a pass from responsibility, a pass from demanding more of their leadership, a pass from addressing their ideology. We talked about bandwidth. I think in everything in our life, it's not necessarily about how big the bandwidth is, but about what we spend the time therein. Time with your family, time with your children, the things that mean the most to you. It's always not necessarily quantity, but quality. You could spend a lot of time, but if you're just staring at the screen, not talking, not conversing, wasting that time, the quantity means nothing. But if you cherish that, if you do activities that build memories, your family time will mean a lot. When we address issues of concern, of ideology, 
that is fueling the radicalization of Muslims from imams, from clerics, from organizations that bring the mantras, the ideologies of the Middle East here. Political Islam, Sharia interpretations that are not modernized. Quranic verses with tafsir or interpretations with seerah of the stories of the Prophet Muhammad that look backwards as the word salaf, the friends of the Prophet, salafis who look backwards, not forward. We're not asking our kids to question authority. We just let them ask questions. There's a big difference between questioning and asking questions. Oh, sure, imams don't mind. Oh, they don't mind if the interfaith community comes in and asks questions about Islam. Oh, what does Quran mean? Is Islam, does Islam mean peace? What's the story of Abraham that is the same as the story of Abraham of Christianity and Judaism? You know, listen, that might sound, not to sound disrespectful, but those commonalities are wasting our bandwidth. They're wasting time. They're not leadership. Don't just ask questions. Question them. Not in an antagonistic way, but our children, our youth, should be questioning our leadership about why. Why does their interpretation of the Quran say a woman gets half the vote of a man in a court? Why is their interpretation that divorce is only done by a man three times, but not the other way equally? Now, I don't agree with those interpretations. I think there are modern interpretations that provide equal rights. But the vast majority of the establishment leadership of Muslim communities across this country are in denial that these modern interpretations are pervasive. In fact, if you pull books from the shelves of mosques and you actually question leaders when you come into the mosques, like you would in a synagogue or in a church, you expect them to have interpretations that are commensurate with American modernity, with Western modernity. That's what we should be teaching our, our kids and future leaders. We try to in our Muslim Liberty Project. Working with Muslims is not just a populist movement where you want to just sort of, in a demagogic way, tell Muslims what they want to hear. And this is why reform movements don't start massively and virally. It's because initially, true leadership is about moral authority, consistency, honesty, transparency. That's what reform is. Reform has to be about honesty. It has to be about coming to terms with many of the narratives that are out there about the Prophet Muhammad, about battles that were fought in the 7th century, and what do we do with that? How do we ask the tough questions? Why is the Quran organized, not in chronological order, but why did they put it into an order that makes it very hard to understand? unless you pull out the matrix of which verses came first or last, and you realize that the last passage chronologically is that today I have completed your faith for you, God tells Muslims in the Quran. And yet they go on to then 
start transcribing 70 years to 300 years later, verse after verse of hadith, which is the sayings of the Prophet Muhammad, that then changed many of the interpretations. That in fact made it seem that maybe God did not complete his religion for them. And they went on to expand it into a totalitarian interpretation of Sharia. These are all things we have to question and not just ask questions about, but to question. So real leaders are morally, morally honest about the challenges we face. The fact that if you got a hundred yards left, we're on the if you got a hundred yards across the whole field, we're on the one yard line with ninety nine left to go. We got a long road to go, but we are on the field. We are Muslims who love our faith. We do so from a position of moral agency and moral authority. We leave no excuses other than the fact that this country of freedom, liberty, needs to start to have a policy that will ask Muslims the tough questions, that will work with those Muslims who are honest and are seeking reform, and that will begin to cultivate leaders that love their faith but are Americans first that happen to be Muslim. And that's about leadership cultivation. And start working with Muslim organizations whose bandwidth is soaked up primarily by a recognition that our work on this earth will be about defeating Sharia supremacy. That our work on this earth shall be about defending America from enemies domestic and abroad who believe in Islamic State identity, who believe that the law of the state is not about being under God and based in reason, but rather being under imams who prescribe fatwas based in scriptural exegesis of archaic interpretations of the Qur'an and Hadith. We can do better as Muslims and we should demand that the men with beards, the majority of whom, there are some moderates that have beards, but for the most part, the Salafis who refuse to reinterpret scripture in modern ways, that they be marginalized and that we begin to take back our faith as I talk about it, takebackislam.com. We need to own it. That's what leadership is. Leaders own the problem. They don't deflect it. And the last thing I want to leave you with is one of the things I tell youth. Victims look in the mirror and they see their own reflection from as reflected off of whatever they want to hate in the other. So they they blame their own limitations on America. They blame their own limitations on Israel, on their anti-Semitism. So they see themselves through their disgust of others. And their disgust of others in the West and American policy and all the other things that they blame, the American military, their American neighbors, the American Constitution. They see themselves so wholly empty that they must demonize the others and waste their time on the others 
rather than looking in the mirror and seeing a reflection of somebody who they love, who's an American, somebody who has not blamed their identity. I mean, it's sort of you look at the kids. You know, I've met some kids as a physician who grew up in households where the parents suffered domestic violence, their father was an alcoholic, on and on. And you wonder, how did this human being turn out to be such a beautiful soul, angelically honest and and uh, a strong student and academic? And you realize that they were given the gift from God that they did not find their own strength from their father. They decided they wanted to be whatever that parent was not. So they were defining themselves in the reflection not from their parents or from anyone else, but in the reflection of what they wanted to be. That's what leadership is. That's what the defeat of political Islam will need, is new leaders who seek, now the Wahhabis would call this inventions or bid'ah, but new leaders who seek inventions of ideas like in computer, medical, or other sciences, new political science, new human science, to stimulate poetry and creativity in every Muslim that gives them a freedom to be themselves and question authority and not just ask questions. So we need tough love. Real leadership is tough love to our community, not waiting for demagogic masses to follow because you tell them what they want to hear. That's a populist demagoguery that doesn't need brilliance and doesn't need leadership. No, Muslims need real moral authority that is grounded in honesty, that tells them that we have some tough work to roll up our sleeves and start to address the core interpretations that are misogynist, that are hateful, that are draconian, that uh, are based in hadood punishments that are incompatible, that there must be a way to interpret the original Arabic script and must be a way to redeem the narrative of the Prophet Muhammad in a way that we can teach our kids that if the Prophet Muhammad were alive today, he would celebrate an American constitution whether Muslims were 1% or 80% of a country, and that it would never want Sharia in government or in institutions, and that we need to develop a new school of thought, a new school of Sharia thought that does not interfere in government and it compels, it, it instills in Muslims that we want no other system of government other than American one because religion is personal. You need to live in a laboratory of freedom in order to truly, truly be Muslim. And that submission to God, which is what Islam means, it doesn't mean peace. Salam means peace. Submission to God only comes when God knows that you live in a society where you're free to sin or not sin. You're free to leave Islam or come back or not. All those things which the Islamists and the Salafists want to enforce through government is they're seeking power. They're seeking influence and control. So the bandwidth, judge your Muslim organizations based on the bandwidth of what they spend their time on. If their website's all about bigotry and victimization and blaming the West and come meet your fellow Muslims, 
Yeah, that's fine, but that should be 5% of their work, not 90. If they're about reform, about owning the problem, tough love, those are the organizations, those are the leaders of the future of Islam. Thanks again for joining me this week on Reform This and God Bless. This is Zudi Jasser. Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network.